Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I promise this will be our last sermon on verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And then the part of this verse that we're going to focus on, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for another opportunity to join together in worshiping you. And we do ask that you would be glorified this day through the preaching and teaching of your word, that you would apply your word to the hearts of everyone here. May you encourage us and build us up and and give us hope as we consider your word this day. Father, we need your spirit to, to help me preach your word and to apply it. Each person here has their own situations and things that they deal with that only you know, Lord. Apply the word to their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we looked at the sovereign grace of God and the life of the Apostle Paul. And we considered how amazing it is that not only was Paul snatched from darkness and saved by the sovereign grace of God, but he was also called to be an apostle by the will of God. And I attempted to demonstrate to you how we should receive hope when we consider what God can do, and us. How he softens the hardest of hearts and cleanses the vilest of sinners. And how he uses us to advance his kingdom and build his church in spite of our past. God demonstrating his power and goodness through the life of the Apostle Paul, as I said, should give us hope. There's not a person out there who is out of his reach. There's not a soul that he is not capable of saving. In the sermon today, as we introduce this epistle again, I want to once again give us hope. So last week I emphasized the hope we should have as individuals, And today I will emphasize the hope that we should have as a church. And I'm referring to both the local church and the universal church. So often, our minds are incapable of moving beyond our problems and our circumstances. And we get stuck there. And it causes discouragement. Take this church, for example, a church that has suffered many things over the past few years. And it is easy to be discouraged and think that all is dark and all is grim because of what you've been through. It is easy for the small numbers here and the lack of plurality of elders to to be a reason for despair. It is easy to be pessimistic about the future of this church when we look at the lack of young people here currently. It is easy to panic about the financial situation of this church when we consider our current members. It is easy to be disheartened after so much confusion, pain, and broken relationships. 
It is easy to be downcast when we look at the state of Christianity, not only in Holland, but also in the world at large. It is easy to enlarge our problems while belittling the power of God. And this causes us to be discouraged, to dwell on our problems instead of our mission. And this is the great danger. Harry Reader, a man who has been used by God to revitalize several churches and help many other churches in a similar situation, he says that the, the signs of a dying church are quite obvious. But there are often symptoms of a sick church that we are not aware of. And these symptoms can be present long before you see signs of a dying church. And one of these symptoms of a sick, of a sick church is what he calls a maintenance mentality. And this is what he says about a maintenance mentality. He says, this is how a lot of churches view ministry today. Let's just hold on, they are thinking. Hopefully we can replace the number of people we lost last year, they say. Or we will be lucky if we can meet our budget. They do actually have a vision for ministry, but the vision is to hang on and hold on. It is a maintenance mentality whereby they are merely polishing a monument rather than building a movement of God's grace. They are on a life support system rather than on a life-saving mission. And their only hopes and dreams are to keep the doors open rather than to bring a harvest of souls through those doors. That is a maintenance mentality. Is our goal as a church to simply survive? If our goal is to survive for the sake of survival, let's shut the doors now. But the Lord has given us a mission. And when we are discouraged and just thinking about survival, instead of focusing on our mission, it shifts our mentality and our actions. The way we think affects what we do, what we attempt to do, and how we utilize our resources. Difference despair is the result of focusing too much on our problems. Our goal should be to win Holland to Christ. To be used by God to plant other churches in Michigan and in the United States and abroad. Is this our focus and our mission? But again, when we get into despair, we neglect our mission and we belittle the power of God. And this puts us in a hopeless situation. So, so as we look at this introduction today... I hope to raise your eyes above our current situation so that you will no longer focus on our past problems. And my hope is that you will have a renewed sense of our mission as a church and that you would see that we serve a big God. And in doing these things, my prayer is that you will find hope and encouragement and what the Lord can do in and through this church. Dear friends, may I say it's time to no longer sit around and lick our wounds, but to fulfill our mission as a church. Going to our text, verse 1 here. Paul says to the saints who are in 
Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints. What is a saint? A saint is one who is morally pure, one who is holy. The word carries the idea of being separated or set apart. Charles Hodge said, saints are those who are cleansed by the blood of Christ and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost and thus separate it from the world and consecrate it to God. And we tend to avoid this term in the Protestant faith because we know that many Catholics have used this word wrongly, but, but saint is actually a biblical term. Paul is writing to Christians and he refers to them as saints. As believers, we are saints. And this does not mean that we are perfect, but, but the true Christian is holy. He, he is morally pure. He is separated from the world and separated unto God. Calvin said, no one is a believer who is not holy. The author of Hebrews tells us that we ought to pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness without which we will not enter into heaven. We must be saints. What does James say? Do you not know that, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here is that separation. And of course, by world, we mean those beliefs, practices, and systems that are opposed to God. This does not mean that we move to a monastery away from all unbelievers. But even though we dwell amongst unbelievers, we are separated in a manner of speaking. We are not like them. We are different. A new creation. And notice what else Paul says about these saints. He says, also faithful in Christ Jesus. And this has two meanings. First, they have faith in Christ. Faith for salvation. One cannot be a saint without faith. This would be to say that we can work for our salvation, but, but salvation comes by faith alone. Calvin said, no one is holy who is not a believer. Holiness comes not by our works, but by God. He makes us holy. He, he separates us. And then we are called to live holy, to be separated. But this comes through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But not only do we have faith in Christ, but, but to be faithful in Christ Jesus means to be loyal to Christ. The, these believers lived in a hostile environment and we are told they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Being faithful had consequences to them. It was not easy. They did not live in a Christian environment. So where are these saints? Where, where are they located? Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul is writing a letter to faithful saints in Ephesus. And if you know anything about the city of Ephesus, you realize that this is an amazing thing. The fact that there is a church in Ephesus is quite significant. Most of us have grown up in a time and place where it is absolutely normal to have Christian churches, at least so-called Christian churches, on every corner. That's all most of us know. So unless we pay careful attention to this, we will miss the significance of the fact that there is a thriving church in the city of Ephesus. So why is this significant? Well, let us look at Ephesus for a little bit. Ephesus was on the west coast of Asia Minor. And it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, with an estimated population of about a quarter of a million people during the life of Paul. And the population was pretty much ethnically diverse. The city was a major commercial port and received a lot of 
um, tourist business as people traveled there to worship and see the temple of Artemis. And, and sometimes you, ref- you hear this, this goddess referred to as Artemis and sometimes as Diana. And the reason is this, is that the Greeks worshipped Artemis and the Romans identified the same goddess as Diana. So they both worshipped this goddess of fertility and, and other things. Now, there have been different animal bones that have been discovered around the shrine of, of Artemis, so it is believed that, that sacrifice was, was some part of, of this cult there. And one source said that excavated in, uh, inscriptions portray Artemis as a savior who was able to answer prayer. She was considered an extremely powerful deity with the ability to compel the passion of a woman toward a man. And this great temple of Diana was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Another source said this temple was 425 feet in length and 220 feet in breadth. It was an architectural masterpiece. There was a, um, the chief attraction there was an image of Diana said to have fallen directly uh, from heaven to earth. And the temple was so popular among the pagans that Ephesus emerged as the religious center of all of Asia. And although Artemis or Diana seemed to be the the main idol in Ephesus, it is said that there were over 50 gods and goddesses that were worshipped. And the the practice of magic was also popular in Ephesus. We are told this in the book of Acts. John Gill says this included magic arts, Soothsaying, which is fortune-telling, necromancy, trying to communicate with the dead, conjuration, and the like. There's also something called the Ephesia Grammata, which means Ephesian words, and I probably butchered that word. But these were words that were thought by many to be magical. Like a magic formula or a spell, these words were named after the city of Ephesus, and were believed to have been inscribed on the statue of Artemis. Albert Barnes says this about the Ephesian letters. They seem to have consisted of certain combination of letters or words, which by being pronounced with certain annotations of voice, were believed to be effectual in expelling diseases or evil spirits, or which by being written on parchment and warned, were supposed to operate as amulets or charms to guard from evil spirits from danger. Very superstitious people. It was also written that Ephesus was known as a place of demonic activity. And perhaps this is why Paul spends so much time in Ephesians talking about spiritual warfare. So so here's a city absolutely filled with idolatry. The making and selling of idols is a large part, if not the bulk, their economy. Idolatry is most likely what what kept this city alive economically. These people are committed to their idol worship. In Acts chapter 9, we read about the riot that happened in Ephesus, and we are told that all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Who has the time and the energy to scream at the top of your lungs, great is Diana, for two hours? These people were committed to their idolatry. They were also greatly committed to their magic. In Acts chapter 19, Ephesian converts burn their books on magic, and we are told that the value of that was 50,000 pieces of silver, believed to be about half a million dollars today. That's a lot of books on magic. These people were committed. But, but what a spiritually dark city. Given over to sin and idolatry. No light whatsoever. A city that from its inception was idolatrous. And yet Paul is writing to faithful saints in this pagan 
city. How did this happen? How is there a growing, thriving church in this kingdom of darkness known as Ephesus? Well, we read about the spread of the gospel in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And here Paul is on his third missionary journey. He makes his way to Ephesus and he finds 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They, they seem like faithful men, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And, and there doesn't seem to be any fruit in Ephesus. Paul lays hands on them, the Holy Spirit comes, and then he goes into the synagogue and speaks boldly for three months. This causes a problem. Some were not persuaded by Paul, and they hardened their hearts, and they, they spoke evil of Christianity. So Paul takes the disciples aside to the school of Tyrannus, where he reasoned with them daily for two years. Two years of, of daily reasoning with them from the Scripture. And we are told that as a result of this, all in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul persisted in sharing the gospel and teaching the scriptures, and the Lord allows him to perform miracles to validate his ministry. So God begins to work in this city of Ephesus, and, and we are told in verse 17 that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Isn't that amazing? A city given over to complete darkness. God begins to move, and now the name of the Lord Jesus is being magnified. And it's not just emotionalism. People are not just trying to be healed. Souls are actually being converted. Consider verses 18 through 20 of chapter 19 of Acts. And many had believed, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This is real repentance. As one commentator said, they practiced their magic publicly, so they demonstrated their repentance publicly by burning their books publicly. Notice the repentance. They're done with this. They're not saying, well, you know, there were some useful principles in this magic that I could possibly apply to the Christian life. There's enough good there that I can apply to my life today. They burned them. Repentance. Separation from the world. This was a declaration that we are no longer like you. We are no longer given in to these things. We are done with these things. There is true repentance. And again, this was around a half million dollars worth of books. There was a lot of people demonstrating their repentance. A great multitude of souls being saved. And why was this happening. Listen again to verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. I love that description. That the word was faithfully taught and proclaimed. So even though Ephesus was filled with darkness, the word grew mightily and prevailed. God blessed the proclamation of truth. God, in his sovereign grace, was using the word to build his church in the middle of a dark city. That the sovereign grace that snatched Paul out of darkness is now snatching a city of people out of darkness. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, actually prevailed. Does that surprise us? It should not. That is the reason it is called the power, the, the dunamis. Where we get the word dynamite, the power of God. 
for salvation. But again, Christ said, I will build my church and the the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And many will interpret this verse to say that, well, the gates of hell here means death. And this is in a defensive position, but I, I, I disagree with that. I believe that Christians are not on the offense here. I mean, not on the defense here, but rather on the offense. It is the gates of hell which will not prevail. The the, the church is the one attacking the kingdom of darkness, and we see this here in Ephesus. It was filled with darkness. The, The kingdom of darkness reigned in that city. But Paul brought light, and the word grew mightily and prevailed. Idolatry did not prevail. Darkness did not prevail. The word of God prevailed. I've heard Conrad and Bailey describe missions as pushing back the darkness. I love that description. Paul goes to Ephesus and he pushes back the darkness. That the sovereign grace of God infiltrated Ephesus and, the, and pushed back the darkness. The gates of hell did not prevail there. The word of the Lord prevailed. And obviously this caused the darkness to rise up and fight back. We read about a man named Demetrius, a silversmith. He made shrines of Diana. These people are so repentant. They they are so done with their idols that it's starting to hurt the economy in a matter of speaking. People are not buying idols. And they are afraid. This is our livelihood. People are turning away. They are afraid afraid that, that this will hurt their pocketbooks because people are not buying idols. And they are afraid that that Diana or Artemis will come in disrepute. She will no longer be considered legitimate. Because this man Paul is is going around saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. They realized that people were repenting, repenting of idolatry. They were beginning to despise Diana as the worthless idol she was. So Demetrius stirs up a riot. And we read that when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. But they didn't really know what was going on. There was just this this madness. Our idols, our livelihood are being attacked by the gospel. And the gospel seems to be prevailing. We must do something. So they chant like maniacs for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They feel threatened by the gospel. And rightfully so. Dear friends, I wonder if the idols in our culture feel threatened by the church today. I wonder if abortion clinics feel threatened by the presence of a church and their community. I wonder if other religions feel threatened by the fact that there is a church in their neighborhood. I would venture to say no. Why? Because we are in maintenance mode, not in mission mode. Paul was constantly in mission mode. It's interesting to note that the clerk who calmed down the riot He said, everyone knows that Ephesus is the temple guardian of Diana. He said, it's undeniable. What are you disputing about? It's undeniable. I love what MacArthur says. He says, although the man was sincere, he was tragically mistaken. Today, no one worships Artemis, yet millions worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave them a false hope. 
the sovereign grace of God and in building his church. Seeing this should give us hope. But how does the building of the church in Ephesus give us hope today? At Harbor Church in in Holland, Michigan, how do we obtain hope from what we see here in Ephesus? Alexander McLaren said, what was Ephesus? Satan's very headquarters and seat in Asia Minor. A focus of idolatry, superstition, wealth, luxury springing from commerce, and moral corruption. (coughs) Great is Diana of the Ephesians. The books of Ephesus were a synonym for magical books. Many of us know how rotten to the core the society of that great city was. And there on the dunghill was this little garden of fragrant and flowering plants. We live in an Ephesus today. Darkness all around us. And although we have had churches and a gospel here for many years, we live on a spiritual dunghill. You don't believe me? Just look around you. We sacrifice babies for the sake of convenience. I mean, for the sake of convenience. We, people, we hear people talk about, what about rape and murder? But, but what are they really killing babies for? That baby will cost me too much money. I won't be able to go to school. I can't buy the things that I want. For the sake of convenience, we take lives, the most innocent lives, People parade their sodomy in the streets, publicly. Businesses, governments, Christians, professing Christians, even professing Christian churches, support those who parade their homosexuality and call them brothers and sisters. I support my LBGTQTIA plus brothers and sisters. People identifying as animals. Madness. I heard of a teacher who, who, who was identifying as a cat and wanted to get a litter box in his classroom to use. Wickedness. Men dressed like women reading perverted books to little children in libraries. Billions of dollars spent every year on pornography. One of the biggest sources of income. In many ways, we are more pagan as a nation than Ephesus was. Even though they had no gospel influence. And things look dark and grim. Even in Holland. Because although so many profess to have faith in Christ, they really don't believe. We are comforted by the beautiful church buildings around when there's absolute spiritual darkness. Dear friends, when we see how God used faithful Christians to push back the darkness in Ephesus, we should take heart believing that God can push back the darkness in Holland and all over the world. That should give us hope. We've seen it done over and over again. But, but you know what the naysayers will say? Well, we don't have an Apostle Paul today. But it was not just apostles that were used by God to build the church, was it? It was faithful Christians over and over again. This Friday, people are going to paint everything green, dress like leprechauns, wear shirts that say, kiss me, I'm Irish. Why? To celebrate St. Patrick's Day. You know, the, the, the true story of Patrick of Ireland is quite inspirational. Patrick was born in sometime around 386 A.D. And at the age of 16, he was kidnapped by pirates and taken to Ireland where he was made a slave. 
As a teen, he rejected the faith his parents tried to instill upon him. But, but while he was suffering as a slave, the Lord began to work on his heart. And he was eventually converted. And Ireland was a barbaric place. Robbing and stealing. Infants and others were, were sacrificed to false gods thrown into the fire. And after being a slave for six years, Patrick escaped and made his way back home. But he had a problem. He developed a love and concern for those barbarians who kidnapped him and enslaved him and mistreated him and abused him. And he wanted them to know Christ. So what did he do? Stephen Nichols said, he returned to Ireland with a mission. Patrick had no less of a goal than seeing pagan Ireland converted. Dear God, may we have no less of a goal. Patrick desired to push back the darkness in Ireland. How dare a man attempt that? A barbaric place. Filled with darkness and one man believing in the power of God said, I'm going to go there and push back the darkness. And when he returned to Ireland, he faced opposition. But eventually people began to turn to Christ. And Patrick wrote that God so blessed his efforts that many thousands were born again unto God. It is said that he spent over 30 years evangelizing. And during that time, thousands came to Christ and over 200 churches were planted. Stephen Nichols said, Patrick rid Ireland of marauding ways and a cultural and civil barbarianism by bringing not only Christianity to Ireland, but by bringing a whole new ethic. Derived from Christianity. The Lord used the faithfulness of Patrick to, to push back the darkness in Ireland. The, the Lord has used men and women over and over again to push back the darkness. Just consider the great awakening here. And in Britain, 50,000 people converted during a short period of time because men were being faithful in the proclamation of truth and, and churches were being faithful to the mission God had given them to do. Dear friends, the Lord can do the same here in Holland with this small group of faithful saints. But, but what else does the naysayer say? He says, yeah, Christianity spread like wildfire in those places and even spread like that in America once. But look at America today. It doesn't last. And to that I say, I believe one of the reasons why places like America have declined is because we have lost our focus on our mission. When Christianity begins to flourish, Christians tend to get sidetracked and lazy. Oh, we, we, we have a, an abundance of Christianity now. Now it's time to, to sit back and relax and watch the following generations go to hell in a handbasket. Because that's what happens. You do realize that every generation that's born are unbelievers. A whole new generation of unbelievers. A whole new generation. We don't have people like, like Knox who, who, who cry to the Lord, give me Scotland or I die. And we, we don't have Patricks who, who have a goal no less than seeing an entire nation turn to Christ. No, we are content to simply exist in our cozy Christian bubbles. But this was not the mission and mentality of Paul and so many other faithful Christians throughout history. When Paul was in Athens, he wasn't there to even evangelize. He was waiting. He's waiting in Athens. 
and he sees that the city is given to idolatry and it provokes his spirit. It makes him sick to see these idols. Paul did not say, well, you know, this is what we expect, expect from unbelievers. This is what they do. They're idolatrous. This is the world we live in. We don't expect great things from God. There will always be unbelievers. Don't worry about the idolatry in your neighborhood. There will always be idolatry. That was not the mentality of Paul. It made him sick. Dear friends, there is plenty in this nation and this city that should provoke our spirits. Not only are unbelievers dying and going to hell, but the holy God of the Bible is being sinned against. That disturbed Paul, and it should disturb us as well. And we try to have this false humility. When I see the idols of others, it should just cause me to look inside of me and find my own idols in my heart. Yes, do that. But that idolatry should provoke you to share the gospel. Not, not to have a false humility. Who, who am I to, 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 to say that someone else is a sinner? Who, who am I to, to judge them by telling them to repent? This was not Paul's mentality. Different, do we desire to push back the darkness in Holland, in America, in the world? Or are we content with what we see? Paul was not just trying to, to stay safe in a Christian bubble until he could, until he could die or Christ would return. That, that was not his motivation. He, he's visiting cities, visiting pagan places to push back the darkness. And if we desire to see the darkness pushed back, if we desire for the church to grow as unbelievers are converted, we must as Paul says, be faithful saints. God is sovereign. We know that. But God is a God of means. He uses means. He brought revival to Ephesus, but not until he sent Paul. He brought revival to Ireland. But, but not until Patrick was obedient to the call to go. How can they be saved unless they hear? How can they hear unless there's a preacher? God is a God of means. Don't you dare blame the lack of fruit we see on the sovereignty of God when we are sitting there doing nothing. This is like the man who, who says, if the Lord wants me to work, he'll give me a job, and I'm not filling out applications. That's what we do, spiritually speaking. That's how we are when it comes to the, to the lost being saved. The Lord is sovereign. He can do it without me. That's not being faithful. Being faithful saints means two things. First, we must be separated from the world, not trying to integrate with it, as was emphasized earlier. We do not win pagans to Christ by acting like pagans. Paul was constantly confronting the idols in the cities he visited. And as people were converted, they were separating themselves from those idols. Vodibachum said that when Paul saw idols, it, makes, it made him sick. When American Christians see idols, they say, how can I become one of those? Christians want to be America's next top idol. We want to integrate with our society as much as we can. And we're going to show them that we love them by embracing their sin, by being like them. We've become so weak and foolish in this nation, trying to win the culture by being like it by being relevant. We say things, you know, pe people just don't want to hear preaching today. Let's just move this pulpit. I'll sit on a stool and drink Starbucks while I talk to you. 
People don't want to be preached at anymore. Dear friends, look at the Great Awakening. I have a, I have a painting downstairs in my office. You, you're free to go look at it. Of George Whitfield standing on his platform preaching the gospel. And people are th- throwing things at him, trying to stab him with a pitchfork, hitting him with whips, blowing trumpets so that people can't hear him. They hated the preaching of the gospel. They, they never liked the preaching of the gospel. In fact, Patrick started carrying a dagger on him for safety's sake. But, but we have this mentality of we don't want to clash with our culture. Let's not go and preach the gospel at a pride parade, because it's going to cause conflict and strife. You mean like the riot in Ephesus? Yeah, that's what happens when you, when you start to tell people to repent of their idolatry. And we don't try to be confrontatious for the sake of confrontation, but, but the gospel is confrontational. Do we understand that? Lloyd-Jones once said that people don't want to turn to Christianity because they look at Christians and say, They don't have anything that I don't have. They're no different than me. They're just like me. They talk like me. They do the same things that I do. Apparently, their faith has done nothing for them, so why would I want it? That is one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that its separateness actually attracts Accepting the sins of our day does not make us relevant and it does not make us more tolerable to pagans. It makes us unfaithful to God and powerless. And secondly, we must be faithful in Christ as these Ephesian Christians. We must maintain that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. We must be faithful to the gospel. Again, Paul called men to faith and repentance. Because that is where the power is, in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if we change that message, we are removing the power We give people a a message they can easily tolerate, but that can do nothing for their souls. But also our allegiance must be to Christ. Seeking to please Him. More concerned about pleasing Christ than we are about being acceptable to others. We pledge our allegiance to Christ. And finally, we must be faithful to our mission as a church. I believe this is a weakness in in so many doctrinally sound churches. They're not actually faithful to their mission. I've worked in the business world for a long time, and I often laugh at mission statements because you read that mission and you see the company and you say, not one person there believes that mission statement. That should not be the case in the church, should it? But you know, dear friends, we have a purpose statement in our Constitution. Do you know what the purpose of this church is according to our very Constitution? It says this, the purpose of this church is to glorify the God of the Scriptures by maintaining and promoting His worship both individually and corporately, by evangelizing the lost and by building up his saints. And here's what we say. We're all about worship. We're all about discipleship. But let's just ignore that middle part of evangelizing the lost. But that is our mission. This purpose statement is derived from Scripture. This is the purpose of the local church. We exist to worship God, to make disciples, and to teach them to obey all that Christ commands. And if we are not faithful to that mission, if we are not faithful to the Great Commission, we will not push back the darkness in Holland. We oftentimes act like the Great Commission is only for missionaries. Making disciples and teaching them to obey, that's what you do out there somewhere, right? 
That's what you do overseas. But dear friends, we need to fulfill the great commission here in Holland. This is a mission field. If we were in a remote village in Africa right now, surrounded by tribesmen with spears, would you feel differently about the mission of this church? Would you say, our land is filled with pagans, so let's evangelize it? Different look around you. Their pride praise in Holland. You are on a mission field. Holland is no better than a cannibalistic tribe in another nation. No better. We have no less of a mission field right here in Holland. And praise God for all of the people who, who go out to, to other nations to, to, be, to be missionaries. But, but, but I get so sick and tired of everyone saying we need to go abroad. We need to go abroad while America goes to hell. They don't have the gospel there. We need to go abroad. Yes, we need to go abroad. But, but stop neglecting your neighbors who don't know Christ, leaving them behind to go abroad. Let's do both. It's not an either or. It's both and. But we act like it's so much more glorious to take the gospel to, to, the, to the pagan nation when America is a pagan nation. Once again, yes, we have churches all over the place, but these churches are mostly pagan. A false gospel. This is a mission field. I often wonder why churches like Kabwara Baptist Church in Zambia, pastored by Conrad Mbewe, can plant 20 churches and counting, while other churches plant none and barely survive. Is it simply the sovereignty of God? Maybe. But are we actually faithful to our mission? Before Conrad and Bayway arrived at Kobara Baptist Church, as far as I know, it was not a church-planting church. And after his first year there, he began to butt heads with his fellow elders because they wanted the church to be this warm and cozy place where, where you just escape from the world. And Conrad and Bayway said, no, the church is the training post where we go out and conquer the world. We say the church is a hospital for the sick. Yes, for the sick to get well and go back out. The other illustration, is the church a cruise ship? Or is it a battleship? And again, we're not talking about going on Christian crusades. We're talking about the proclamation of the gospel. Faithfully making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. This sounds like a lofty and frightening task. But dear friends, consider the power of God demonstrated in building his church in Ephesus. This gospel was so powerful that, that it not only penetrated Ephesus, but it made it here to America. Dear friends, we are the ends of the earth. Do you realize that? Our God is powerful. And the word of God prevails. If we would only share it. If we would only proclaim it. Dear friends, may we be faithful in our mission and hopeful that God will bless our labors. May we not be the church on a life support system, polishing monuments, but rather a church on a life-saving mission. This is true in every area of life. I've helped over my, over my years several businesses grow. And one of, the, one of the problems you always see in businesses, 
just like in a church, is a failure to have a mission and to be loyal to that mission. You go to a business and you say, what is your mission here? To survive. And that's why they're dying. They're not focusing on building things better. They're not focusing on their mission, on their goal. They're simply trying to survive. But, but simply trying to survive makes you die. Why? Because you're taking your eyes off of the thing you are supposed to be doing. Do you realize that the way we survive as a church is to be faithful to our mission as a church? Let us not lose track of that. We must be faithful to our mission. And let me just close by saying, look to Christ, dear friends. Paul experienced that sovereign grace of God in his life, snatching him out of his hatred of God, giving him new life, saving the the, the chief of sinners. And that moved him. It gave him passion to see that happen to others. Christ was so glorious and and beautiful to Paul that, that he said, I must go and tell others about him. Has Christ done that for us? Do we find the motivation we need in Christ? We should. If he has paid for your sins, if he has given you new life, He should be all the motivation we need to go out and fulfill our mission as a church. And may the Lord be pleased to use Harbor Church to to push back the darkness in Holland. And may the, the Lord raise up people in this church to go and plant other churches in, in Michigan and in the United States to push back the darkness here. And my prayer is that the Lord would raise up missionaries in this church to go and push back the darkness in the nations. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. For your glorious gospel that is powerful, that prevails. May we not actually be surprised when the gospel converts people. But may we believe that it is the power of God unto salvation. Dear Lord, break our hearts that we would want what has happened to us to happen to others around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our loved ones, our children in our homes, in the nations. Dear God, raise us up to be passionate, not only about individual and corporate worship, but to be passionate about the Great Commission. And not just in other nations, but right here in our own backyard. Dear Lord, build up this church. Make it a church that is faithful to its mission and purpose here on earth. May we not be afraid of the darkness around us. May we not see the, the darkness as an over as, as, a, as, a, as a thing that, that cannot possibly be overcome. May we be like the Apostle Paul and Patrick of Ireland and so many others who, who saw the darkness around them not as an excuse to go in hiding, but as, as a reason to propel forward with the gospel and proclaim it and, and baptize. And change nations. Dear God, make our view of you big. You are a big God. 
And in light of you being a big God, our problems are relatively small. Lord, help us to focus on you. Father, encourage this church. Give us peace. Give us joy. Give us hope. Hope in your gospel. Hope in what you can do, not only to this church, but through this church. And once again, make us faithful to our mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.